Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes references to domestic violence and depictions of ableism, child abuse and neglect, suicide, and suicidal ideation. This content was written by a mental health professional and a person who has experienced suicidal ideation themselves. Please use your best judgment to decide if this is an appropriate episode for you to listen to. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. If you or someone you love is struggling with suicidal thoughts or the impulse to self-harm, please seek help. Whether it's a therapist, a loved one, or your country's suicide hotline, there's nothing supernatural or inevitable about your pain. Patrice saw the sign for the restaurant as a beacon on a cold and rainy night. The inside was warm and smoky, with a turn-of-the-century charm to it, more like a rich family's parlor than a dining room. The bartender told her she had to try the wings and a lager. This was the former home of beer barons, after all. She followed his recommendation, settling in for dinner. Two guys sat next to her on their own stools. They were immersed in their own little world, switching between raiding the women in the bar and discussing the latest Cardinals game. Patrice hunched farther over her food, not wanting to catch their attention. When she got up to go to the bathroom, she asked the bartender to watch her food and drink. He was happy to. She headed farther into the stately home, found the restroom, and slid into a stall. Scratches came from the other side of the door. She told whoever was there that the stall was occupied. They paused. Then they started again. Patrice did her best to ignore them, hoping the other person would take the hint soon. The door started to rattle. The lights flickered on and off. She yelled at whoever was messing with her to knock it off. In the darkness, two eyes looked down at her from the top of the stall. She screamed. The lights turned on. Patrice flushed the toilet and washed her hands, still hyperventilating. She returned to the dining room and asked the guys at the bar if they had a good look while trying to terrorize her. They both looked up at her, confused. The bartender came over, white as a sheet. No one had followed her into the bathroom. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Limp Mansion, the historic home of a tragic family of St. Louis beer barons, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted.
Set in the historical Benton Park neighborhood of St. Louis, Missouri, the Limp Mansion has it all. You can eat, sleep, hunt ghosts, and even get married in the stately home. All while getting a crash course on the Limp family history. The Limps were descendants of German immigrant Johann Adam Limp, who established the first lager brewery in St. Louis. He is often credited as the man who brought German-style light lagers to the United States, as up until that point, one could only purchase English ales. By 1850, Johann Limp was shipping 4,000 barrels of beer annually. Johann's son, William, continued to expand the brand's influence after his father's death in 1862. And by 1870, Limp's lagers dominated the St. Louis beer market. William Lamp's father-in-law, Jacob Feichert, built the home that would become known as the Limp Mansion in 1868. By the time William Limp acquired it in 1876, the estate was already an impressive complex, including a Victorian manor home and a number of carriage houses. William began renovations right away, converting some of the lower floors to offices for the brewing company. The mid-1890s saw a new boom for the Limp Brewery as their label took off around the country. William was grooming his son Frederick to take over the family business. Though William's favorite, Frederick was actually the fifth child of eight, alongside Anna, William Jr., Louis, Charles, Hilda, Edwin, and Elsa. In 1901, the prosperous Limp family was at the very height of their success. Then, it all came crashing down. William's hopes for a legacy that would outlive him crumbled to ash overnight. His beloved son, Frederick, was gone. His heart had given out, and William wondered if his own would ever truly beat again. Yet William lingered. The world was cruel enough to keep him living when a boy of 28 was laid into the ground. William wanted to lie down at the dirt beside him and never open his eyes again. Even with his eyes open, trying to move forward, the world around him felt dimmed. Colors seemed less vibrant. He lost his appetite and any passion for life. His oldest son, William Jr., would never have the same potential that Frederick had. His mother had called him Billy, a childish name for a childish person. William trundled on as best he could, cloistering himself away with his accounts, trying to find a way to build a new legacy. He was nearly 70 and was running out of time, but it did not trouble him. Not really. In many ways, he felt as if he was already dead. Billy was uncharacteristically grave as he entered William's office. At first, William thought his son was going to ask him for money. But then, Billy spoke, and William barely understood the words that came out of his mouth. Billy told William that Frederick had died. William was puzzled. They had buried his son years ago. Frederick could not have died twice. He wondered for a moment if all his pain had been a dream, if he'd somehow missed years with his beloved son, lost in a nightmare. In the corner of his office, he saw his boy again. He was leaning against the wall, arms crossed, listening in as though this was all some joke. 
William blinked at this improbable vision. Frederick had never been the type to play tricks, or even to smile so sardonically. Something was wrong here. William stood up. He tried to walk towards Frederick, but something was holding him back. Billy. His living son clarified. Frederick Limp had been dead for years, but Frederick Pabst, William's closest friend, had just died. William's legs gave out. A spectral hand reached out for his, but it disappeared as he tried to reach it. Frederick Limp smiled at his father one last time before he walked straight through the wall and out of the house onto South 13th Street. William's chest tightened. It was though he had been poisoned by his dead son's touch. Wheezing, he told Billy to send for the doctor. He was perhaps not long for this world. But fate would not be so kind to him. There was nothing wrong with William's heart, nor any other part of him. The doctor told him cheerfully that he should live for at least another decade or so. William did not share his joy. Frederick Papp's funeral was a stately affair, befitting a grand member of St. Louis's upper class. A sea of black cloth, black feathers, black parasols, and black umbrellas. A black casket covered in white lilies. Droplets of rain clicking against the surface before sliding off into the ground that waited for his friend. The inky sheen of the coffin started to shift. William lost track of where he was. He could no longer tell if he had found some doorway back to the past or if the present was only repeating itself. A funeral dirge in the round. He emptied his handful of dirt onto the coffin, saying a prayer for his son. No, a prayer for his friend. For both of them. Frederick Limp was waiting for William when he got back home, with the same smile. He was proud of his father. He seemed to have more color now, healthier, more alive. Frederick had heard his father's words. He would not abandon him. But William had his own choice to make. He could languish in the land of the living, holding on to crumbs of something that would never last. Or he could join his son in a world without end. William tried to embrace his son, to pull him back to the land of the living with a gentle touch. His arms enclosed Frederick for a moment, and William gasped as he heard a heartbeat inside Frederick's chest. But then, his son's smile hardened. His grasp dug into William's skin. Frederick's fingers carved into William, cutting his veins as they edged closer and closer towards his chest. William's heart stopped for the briefest second. He could hear Frederick's laugh in his ear, telling him it was all too easy. All you needed was a little squeeze. In the next second, Frederick was gone. Tiny crescent moons on William's shoulder were the only sign that he'd ever been there. They faded as William examined them in the mirror. The next morning, his living son could find no trace of the marks, but the pain around William's heart continued to throb, and as he slept, 
he could hear Frederick's words again. Letting go was all too easy. It was several days before William heard from Frederick again. It began with an incessant banging against his door at night. He rose to check and was greeted by nothing but a slight breeze. When he turned back, Frederick was lounging on William's bed, a slight pink to his cheeks and a glow to his eyes, his health returning bit by bit. But Frederick's face was grave. He had waited for William to take the first step, to lead as he always did. Why did he hesitate? William could feel his heart thudding in his chest, straining at his ribs. He desperately took in a breath. It never made it to his lungs. Like a rubber balloon, the air popped somewhere in his chest. William tried again, gasping. Frederick shook his head. He told his father that he was disappointed in him. The loss must not have been so profound if William could still get out of bed in the morning and continue to work. William tried to explain that he had not worked in many days, that his thoughts were constantly on the two Fredericks, his son, his friend. Something squeezed at his windpipe and his heart, stretching his chest wide and swollen. Frederick told his father that he could not be the hand that helped him take that last step into the unknown. William had to do that himself. He must. In a flash, the room was empty once again. William felt the sweet relief of air filling his lungs. He clutched at his chest, but his heartbeat was smooth and even. He should have felt fear in every pore of his body but he felt something else instead. His son asked him for such a little thing in the grand scheme of the universe. He was so small in the end, a full life lived, now empty without his son and his hopes. He could do it. He would do it. There was no other option. While William made up his mind, Billy was throwing an early Valentine's party. He heard his son singing as he ascended the staircase. There was no point in saying goodbye. William climbed the steps slowly. Another set of feet walked alongside him. The rest of their body was missing, but Frederick's laugh was unmistakable. There was joy in his voice as he told his father how proud he was. William's body no longer felt like his own as he closed his bedroom door and locked it. He checked his gun carefully. One bullet was enough, but he had filled the whole chamber should he lose his nerve or miss. Frederick sat behind him on the bed. He looked so much healthier this time, his face light with joy, his legs bouncing excitedly. William looked at his son's face, so innocent, so young. If he could have, he would have taken the years he had left on Earth and given them to his son. Frederick could have lived to see his 30th year, but it was too late for that. In a way, he supposed, he was giving him those years. They would spend them together. He looked at Frederick and asked him if he was certain there was another side, a peace waiting for them should he follow. 
Perhaps so, perhaps not, his son replied. But isn't it better than here? The pain in his voice was too much for William to take. He nodded his head. It was time. He could not put it off forever. His son was owed this. The hand slid through his body again. A warm squeeze around his heart this time. A quiet acknowledgement of love. William grabbed the gun. He took one shaky breath as he heard footsteps thundering up the stairs. That horrible banging on the door again. Then the world exploded around him. William Limp Sr. was devastated by the death of his son and indicated heir, Frederick Limp, on December 12, 1901. He never recovered, pulling away from his family and business. One of William's last confidants, the brewing mogul Frederick Pabst, died two years later on January 1st. On February 13, 1904, William Limp Sr., shot himself in his bedroom at the Limp Mansion, dying before 11 a.m. Guests who stay in William's room report the sounds of running feet and banging on the door. It is reported that his son, Billy Limp, rushed up the stairs in an attempt to save his father, but was unable to break down the locked door before William expired. Up next, a limp family secret comes to horrifying light. Now, back to the story. William Limp Sr.'s judgment of his son Billy proved correct as the 19 aughts became the 19-teens. Billy spent lavishly and became famous in St. Louis for his womanizing. It is said that he distracted his wife Lillian with a daily allowance of $1,000, which he demanded that she spend in full every day if she ever wanted any money from him again. Billy transformed the mansion into his go-to party destination, filled with surprises and amusements for his guests. The most elaborate of these entertainments involved converting the tunnel and cave system between the mansion basement and the limp brewery from a natural form of refrigerated storage to an underground pleasure den, including a swimming pool and bowling alley. Billy frequently hired sex workers to attend his events, and there were rumors that he fathered a child with one of them. But there's no official record of any such addition to the limp family, which begs the question, where was the child? It was the age of Dionysus in St. Louis. While it may have been snowy outside, in here, the world was an eternal summer. Guests lounged around the pool. The clattering of pins carried over from the bowling alley. Beer and champagne flowed like water. Already bubbly from a swim through a sea of champagne, Daisy did not bother to change into her swimming costume to take a dive in Billy Limp's underground pool. Almost immediately, she realized the folly of her decision. The padding in her corset propelled her upwards, while her skirts tried to pull her farther down. Daisy struggled in the middle, 
swallowing mouthfuls of water. She raised her hands in the air, signaling for help. The drunken revelers didn't hear her pleas. She tried to kick her legs free from the tangle of the skirts, but it wasn't working. Once more, she raised her arms. This time, someone reached down and grabbed her from under the arms. He pulled Daisy to the safety of the tile, patting her back as she threw up pool water. She thanked him for his efforts, but he waved it off. He always wanted to rescue a fair maiden, and Daisy had made that possible for him. She smiled, charmed that he knew her name. He introduced himself as Tom, a close friend of Billy's. She could borrow some of Lillian's clothes upstairs. She never wore an outfit more than once anyway. Before Daisy could take more than two steps, Tom called her back. There was a twinkle in his eye as he told her to be mindful of the ghost. She chirped. She didn't believe in ghosts. He told her this house might change her mind. They were always calling down from above in soft whispers, banging on the ceiling, scratching on the walls. They wanted a little attention. If you gave it to them, it was a good story. Daisy smiled good-naturedly, but she still wasn't convinced, no matter how charming Tom was. She headed through a tunnel and up an elaborate staircase. Two servants helped her find the proper room. They unlaced her dress and undergarments before helping her slide into a new set. The sound was so faint that Daisy could barely hear it. She asked the servants if they had heard anything. They shook their heads. The third floor was only the servants' quarters, and everyone was still working. Mr. Limp's guests always stayed long into the night. Daisy nodded in sympathy, but as they tightened the strings on her dress, she heard the sound again. Louder. A child's cry. One of the maids flinched for an instant before returning to normal. Daisy's eyes narrowed. So they did hear it. She asked whose room she was standing in. It was one of the guest bedrooms, they said. The house had several, each stocked with the finest amenities money could buy. Daisy asked if there had been guests in the past few weeks. With a frown, the servant shook her head. They wanted to know what made Daisy ask such a question. Pure curiosity was Daisy's reply. She asked if she could have a moment alone. Barely hiding their confusion, the servants left. The room was quiet. Daisy called out to whoever made the sound, telling them they could come out from where they had been hiding. It was safe now. There was no answer. She lowered herself to the ground, gently. The corset stays restricted her breathing, but she needed to make sure her senses were not lying to her. She could risk it. A child in pain was not to be ignored. Daisy slid along the floor, peering into the darkness underneath the bed. No eyes greeted her. No tiny body. A horribly shrill sound came from above, like nails on a chalkboard. She tried to sit up, banging her head against the wooden support slats. The scream started again. Daisy crawled out from under the bed, holding the throbbing back of her skull. 
She glanced around the room. It was still empty. The servants hadn't come back to check on her. Daisy waited for it to start again. She rose slowly and paced the floor, looking for a hidden passageway or a door. Perhaps the secret parts of the tunnels were echoed in the mansion's full design. Daisy opened the wardrobe and peered inside, half expecting a child with an injured thumb or a loose tooth to come jumping out. But it was only filled with linens. Another scream cut through the silence. Daisy heard the crack of ceramic. Fragments of a chamber pot littered the floor. It was a strange thing to have in a house as modern as this. Billy had the first freestanding shower in St. Louis, after all. There was a knock at the door. The servants wanted to know if she was all right. She made a quick excuse and asked for a few more minutes to compose herself. Both women looked at her strangely, but nodded their heads and exited. Daisy studied the corner for several more moments, but there was nothing there. She sneezed. Pencil shavings floated softly down onto her face. Tilting her head up, she found a small hole in the ceiling, the source of the sound. Whoever was in distress was hidden above her. She left the room, satisfied that she had laid the case to rest. As the maids walked with her, Daisy asked who had the pleasure of living above stairs. The servants shared a look. No one lived above the room, they insisted. A ghost that left pencil shavings was too ridiculous to be believed, and Daisy didn't like the uneasy looks that passed between the servants as she was escorted back to the party. As soon as they'd left her, Daisy retraced her steps. She climbed higher and higher, passing the room she'd been in earlier. There was someone above her. She wasn't imagining it. She found the dimly lit hallway easily enough. It was lined with doors. She opened each in turn, all empty servants' quarters. She reached the end of the hall, finding a small door, almost hidden in the shadows of the attic. She gripped the handle, but it wouldn't budge. An unearthly scream roared from behind the door. She leapt back, terrified, but then, she thought of the anguish of the cry. How would she feel? If she could help, she had to. Daisy knocked, half afraid of what would answer. Her hands were shaking as she pressed her ear against the wood and waited. Someone grabbed her arm. A scream left her lips. It was Tom. His smile was hard as he tried to lead her back the way she came. Daisy tried to tell him that it wasn't a ghost. There was someone here, someone the servants were lying about. Tom continued to walk forward. A servant passed them. Daisy turned her head, following their movements. The mysterious door opened for half a second. She caught a glimpse of a child, no more than five or six years old. Round features, tormented eyes. His hands were bleeding. The door shut swiftly. Daisy turned to Tom, her voice growing louder. Didn't he see it? Didn't he see that there was a child in pain? 
The servant had no medical tools with them. They couldn't do anything to help. Someone must send for a doctor. Tom stopped halfway down the stairs. He turned to her. After taking a deep breath, he spoke softly. The limps could make problems disappear. Daisy didn't want to become a problem for them. Daisy nodded her head solemnly, his message understood. He let go of her arm, but she heard him mutter as he continued down the stairs. He said that whether the child was alive or not didn't matter. In Billy's eyes, it was already dead. Allegedly, St. Louis historian Joe Gibbons reported that he confirmed the existence of an illegitimate son of William Limp Jr. in two separate interviews with the former nanny and chauffeur for the Limp family. The child, who was born with Down syndrome, was imprisoned on the top floor of the attic near the servants' quarters. According to Gibbons' supposed interviews, the imprisoned boy lived into his 30s passing away sometime in the 1940s. Though he outlived his father, he would never be released from his prison in Limp Mansion. He was buried in the Limp Cemetery plot. His grave is reportedly marked with a small plaque engraved with one word, Limp. Only in death did the Limps acknowledge him as a member of the family. It is understandable that the attic of the Limp Mansion is quite supernaturally active. The moments that seem to repeat themselves most in the area are from the earliest days of the third floor's tragic resident. Paranormal investigators have placed piles of toys in the attic, which quickly become strewn about the floor when no one is looking. This is likely far more stimulation and entertainment than the unnamed limp child ever received during a short and solitary lifetime. Coming up, we follow the last limp as he grapples with his family's dark history. Now, back to the story. William Limp Jr. and his wife Lillian filed for divorce in 1908. The court appearances were a circus of local press coverage as the two spouses told tales of each other's depraved doings, including accusations of violence, inebriation, cruelty, and atheism. When prohibition was introduced by Congress in 1919, Billy was forced to shutter the Lemp Brewery without notice. Merely a year later, Elsa Limp Wright, Billy's sister, shot herself. She was the second Limp family member to lose her battle with suicidal thoughts. There would be more. Edwin did not like the mansion. He never really had. An introvert at heart, he didn't fit in at his brother Billy's debaucherous parties or his sister Elsa's more sophisticated soirees. Edwin eventually withdrew from St. Louis High Society to live with company he found more tolerable his own. It wasn't just their parties that were the problem. They all expected Billy to be Billy, but the divorce had taken a toll on him. No one liked having their dirty laundry aired, not even an exhibitionist like him. Their sister Elsa was positively a recluse in comparison, wrapping herself up in her marriage to metal magnate Thomas Wright. 
Their relationship was volatile, and Elsa constantly refused help. Her lifeless corpse was discovered in her bed on March 20th, 1920. She had been shot. The general assumption was suicide, but there was no way to know for sure. Like the rest of the family, she wasn't inclined to discuss her feelings, let alone write them down. Edwin was appalled when his eldest brother brusquely said, this is the limp family for you, as they stood over their sister's body. Edwin chided him in the moment, but he would grow to see the exchange as a sign, a shaking hand reaching out from cold darkness. Billy went next, shortly after Christmas 1922. Though they were all independently wealthy, the downfall of the limp brewery had left them despondent. There was no revelry to be found in Billy anymore. On December 29, 1922, he dismissed his secretary from his home office, then shot himself in the heart. After Billy's death, Edwin found his brother Charles on his doorstep. Come home, Charles begged. There are matters to attend to. But Edwin was home. There was nothing for him in that house. The house. The house that, to him, had killed his siblings and father. Whatever childhood joys he had felt in the building, and he could not remember many, it had never seemed like a home. It was too large and too dark, stifling. Even in the cavernous tunnels, his late brother had transformed into a pleasure palace. Please, Charles begged. There were decisions they had to make, and quickly. Edwin shook his head. The house could crumble and rot for all he cared. He would never forget his brother Charles's face in that moment, the way his jaw set. He would be on his own, he said, all alone. Edwin told him he very much recommended solitude. It might do Charles good after the chaos that was being part of their family. Charles followed his brother's advice. Though he made a few forays into local politics, his involvement in the community never extended to his personal life. He never married, spending his time doting on his beloved dog. Charles's letters were infrequent, but to Edwin, he seemed chipper. Seasons changed, decades passed. Their brother Louis passed away peacefully, leaving only Edwin and Charles as the living male heirs to the limp fortune. Another great war came and went. In 1949, Edwin opened the door to find Charles again. His beloved Doberman Pinscher stood at attention beside him as he leaned on his cane. Edwin asked if Charles was going to ask him to come home. No, 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 Charles said. That bit was over. The house belongs to ghosts now. Edwin mimicked the dog's tilted head, puzzled. Charles said he had made all the arrangements. No need to worry. They would see each other again soon enough. Edwin nodded again unsure what to say. Then Charles turned and left, his dog trotting beside him in devoted obedience. It was the last time Edwin saw his brother alive. 
The snow had changed to rain and sunshine when Edwin entered the limp mansion again. The two servants who had lived with Charles all his life were waiting for Edwin, faces sullen. They could show him where the graves were, they said. Once again, Edwin was confused. Graves? Plural? The son, they said blankly. Billy's son. Edwin still did not follow. Billy's heir and namesake had died of a heart attack six years before. No, they insisted. His other son. Billy's shame and Charles's ward, when tragedy had left the property to him. Edwin had to steady himself on the table as the guilt set in. What decision had Charles wanted to make 30 years ago? Could they have helped the boy? The boy who had become a man in the attic? Was that why his brother had washed his hands so often towards the end? As if he could escape the stain of cruelty against their own flesh and blood. The servant couple reassured Edwin. It was over. Charles had made all the arrangements, even for himself. He did not want to inconvenience anyone. The only misstep was that he shot his dog in the basement, but wasn't able to carry him all the way up the steps to the second floor room where he ended his own life. Edwin's stomach churned, bile rising in his throat as his straining heart thundered in his ears, throat tightening. He had to leave this house. He had to go. He swore he could hear his father chatting on the phone, his brother Billy running up the stairs, trying to break the bedroom door down as a gunshot shook the morning. He swore he could see Elsa dancing in the living room with Thomas, the man she'd loved, then lost, then loved again, only to lose him to her own pain. Lonely Billy, pacing the floor in his home office, gun in hand telling his secretary he did not need her services anymore. And Charles, poor Charles, poor Edwin, the poor limps. What had riches brought them? No, he could not continue. Edwin walked out the door in the middle of the servant's sentence. He would never set foot in the limp mansion again. While William Limp Sr. was the mansion's first victim of suicide, he was followed by three of his children, William Billy Limp Jr., Elsa Limp Wright, and Charles Limp. All three seemingly couldn't pass on. Elsa is mostly cited at her family home, at 13 Hortense Place. Charles and both Williams appear in the halls of the Limp Mansion, sitting down to dinner, or darkening doorways before disappearing in thin air. Ever the womanizer, Billy has been seen peeking in on women in the bathrooms, but he most frequently manifests in the first floor dining room that used to be his office, the room where he killed himself. In 1941, Charles Limp reportedly made his own funeral arrangements by mail. His body was to be cremated, without being bathed, clothed, or changed. There was to be no funeral or press coverage. He shot his dog, and then himself, leaving a single note. 
St. Louis, Missouri, May 9th, 1949. In case I am found dead, blame it on no one but me. He was the only member of the four suicides in the Limp family to leave any kind of final directive. Charles was the last Limp to occupy the mansion. His brother Edwin Limp left St. Louis for his remote Kirkwood, Missouri estate in 1913 and died of natural causes in 1970 at the age of 90. Legend has it that Edwin's last wish was that his butler burn his family's documents, heirlooms, and paintings, save for four mysterious family portraits. The Limp family line died with him. We will never know what inspired Charles to make his arrangements and leave a note, and we will never know why the reclusive Edwin opted to destroy his family's earthly possessions. But we do know that Edwin was by far the longest living member of the final generation, and that Charles was heavily aware of his family's legacy. Even in his tragic illness, he did not want to be a burden on his few remaining family members. Edwin Limp sold the Limp Mansion shortly after Charles' suicide. It was converted to a boarding house. But as the surrounding neighborhood became more run down, reports of the mansion's ghostly goings-on began to spread, and potential tenants dried up. The construction of Interstate 55 in the 1960s was yet another setback, as much of the mansion's grounds and carriage houses were seated for the construction of the road. The Limp Mansion was renovated and restored after its purchase by the Pointer family in 1975. Construction was not without incident, though, as many workmen reported apparitions, strange sounds, paranoia, and various forms of mischief. Now, ghost tours are just part of the Limp's mansions every day. They're moving objects, dark shapes, and a phantom smell of death and decay. Plenty of potential evidence for would-be ghost hunters to collect. But one mustn't forget the tragic reality of the family who gave the home their name. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, indicates that suicidal ideation is an aspect of several inherited mental illnesses, including clinical and bipolar depression, schizophrenia, and borderline personality disorder. Some researchers, including the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, believe that the act itself has a so-called contagion effect, as one completed suicide can cause other suffering from ideation to move from thought to act. But from a certain point of view, the Limp family's tragedy can read as a curse, a wound on a home that has festered into supernatural phenomena. If you do visit, be sure to pause on the stairs, in the attic, and in the tunnels to bear witness to the fall of the house of Limp. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. 
For more information on Limp Mansion, amongst the many sources we used, we found Colin Dickey's Ghostland to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Haunted Places, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy this show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil DeRitter and Jennifer Rache, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>